You know, I went back <clears throat> and I checked, and over the years, I figure that I have preached about 50 Advent sermons and Christmas sermons. Uh, I've preached uh, on Christmas in the Garden of Eden, preached on the Old Testament prophecies about the coming of Christ, especially those prophecies in Isaiah 7 and 9. I've preached on the stories of Jesus' birth recorded in Matthew 2 and Luke 2. I've preached on the genealogies of Jesus in Matthew 1 and 3. That was a very interesting sermon. I've preached on the Christmas story in Galatians 4, which Marty just read this morning. In the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters into God's family. So and I, I ask myself this time of year, what else is there to preach on? You know, where else could I go? Well, you can't go home yet. Uh, <laughs> because there is a, a lot to preach on. The Bible is inexhaustible. And even though you might not initially think to look there, we find the Christmas story. We find the birth of Jesus actually in the book of Revelation in our text for this morning. In Revelation 12, verses 1 through 6 and verse 17, the Apostle John, he, he tells about a woman who gave birth to a son, a male child, destined to rule all the nations, and snatched up to God and to his throne. So if you would turn there, turn to Revelation 12, verses 1 through 6 and 17, and let's take a look. You know, no doubt there's something worthwhile for us to learn here. This is God's word for us uh, this morning. So let's pay close heed to it. Revelation 12, 1 through 6 and 17. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads, heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. And in verse 17... Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who kept the, keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Please pray with me. Every valley shall be exalted, every mountain and hill be made low, the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places plain. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Amen. 
You know, I often recycle my illustrations, and I've been around you folks uh, long enough that you've probably heard this one before, so if you have, uh, just humor me, all right? <laughs> How many of you have ever heard of a man by the name of Clark Clifford? Anybody in here ever heard of Clark Clifford? I'm amazing. Clifford who? No, it's a different guy. <laughs> well, Clark Clifford was a well-known lawyer in Washington, D.C. And at the zenith of his career, he was White House counsel during the Truman administration. Well, one evening, Mr. Clifford was at a White House state dinner, and he turned to the woman next to him and he asked, did I get your name correctly? Is your name Post? Yes, it is, the woman said. Is it Emily Post? Yes, she replied. Are you the world-renowned authority on manners? Clifford asked. Why, yes, I am, Mrs. Post said. Why do you ask? Because, Clifford said, you just ate my salad. <laughs> It's a funny story, perhaps, but what does it have to do with Christmas? What does it have to do with Revelation 12? Well, nothing. I just like the story. <laughs> no, that, that's not true. The tie-in with our text is the principle that knowing something and applying it are two different matters. You see, it's possible to be an expert on manners and, and yet eat the wrong salad. And it's possible to be an expert on the Bible, like most of you are, and yet not apply that knowledge in your daily life. And I contend that this principle applies to our text this morning. At first glance, it might be a little puzzling, you know, a lot of obscure symbols, strange metaphors, like you find throughout the book of Revelation and some Old Testament books, like the prophetic book of Zechariah. But yet, having said that, even on the surface, I think we can begin to see the broad, vague outline of the Christmas story. And some of you might think, well, this is, this is just going to be another Christmas story, one which I've heard many times before. You know, this might be great for someone who doesn't know Christ, but I do know Christ. I know about his birth, so I'm just going to set this one out. I'll just eavesdrop on what will be said this morning because there's probably not going to be very much in here for me. Well, I trust that none of us are thinking like that this morning because there's a lot more here than initially meets the eye. For one thing, how does all this apply to us this morning as we worship this Christ child this Christmas season at Desert Springs Presbyterian Church? So... Hang in there with me this morning. Don't check out on me. Be careful. You might eat the wrong salad if you do. So in the 12th chapter of Revelation, we find this cosmic vision. And it's probably, as I said, not the very first place you would think if you were looking for a narrative of the Christmas story. But you see, that's what we find here. 
What we have here is a heaven's eye view of Christmas. It's a view of Christmas from 30,000 feet. A broad overview of what Christmas is all about. And in this spectacular view of Christmas, and in fact, this spectacular view of all of history, we see who God truly is, not who we might like him to be. And not only that, we also see where you and I, as his children, belong in this picture. And where our suffering and pain, which we endure in this world, fit in his plan. Well, the scene in verses 1 through 6 is heaven. And the Apostle John sees a woman gloriously arrayed. The sun is her garment. The moon is her footstool. And she has a crown of 12 stars. She's about to give birth to a child, and she cries out because she's in labor. Suddenly, John sees standing in front of this woman a fiery red dragon. It's enormous, so big, in fact, that its tail, lashing out across the sky, sweeps away one-third of the stars of heaven and flings them to earth. And this dragon is standing in front of the woman in order to devour her child as soon as it's born. But he doesn't succeed. The woman gives birth to a son, a male child, a mighty one, who John says is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Then suddenly her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. So that's the picture here. I think it's a little puzzling. Let's see if we can figure out what it means. There are three characters here that we need to identify first. First, there's this radiant woman. Who is this woman who gives birth to a son? Well, I think our our first reaction might be to say that she's Mary, the mother of Jesus. But the church at large, even throughout the Middle Ages, Keeps, they kept equating the woman not with Mary, but with the church. You know, the reformers have always understood this woman to be God's representative of his covenant people. She represents believers over the course of time who were the remnant leading up to the birth of Christ. It's through this remnant that Christ was born. And that's the traditional Reformed interpretation of who this woman is. Secondly, there's the child, the seed of the woman. This mighty child is the Christ, the Messiah. He's the one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Well, why does the Messiah rule not with a shepherd's staff, but with an iron club? The answer is that the shepherd caring for his sheep protects them from the onslaughts of Satan. He applies the iron rod to anyone who rises up against him. But he gathers people from all nations to himself so that they come and worship before him. And then thirdly, there's a dragon. It symbolizes Satan. You know, most commentators say that the seven crowned heads indicate Satan's dominion of the world. 
that the ten horns indicate his destructive power. And when he fell, he dragged along with him in ruin one-third of the stars of heaven, which represents a large number of evil spirits. Well, that's the picture here. And, and the main thought is this. The dragon stands in front of the woman who is about to, uh, to deliver so that when the baby is born, he can devour it. That is, Satan is constantly aiming at the destruction of Christ. I think that's the main theme. It's the main point here in this passage. And if you look at it like that, then the entire Bible becomes just one story, becomes the story of the conflict between the seed of the woman and the dragon, between Christ and Satan. And in this conflict, Christ is victorious. You know, in his marvelous commentary on Revelation, entitled More Than Conquerors, William Hendrickson reviews the history of the Old Testament from Genesis 3.15 up to Jesus' birth in Bethlehem, showing the wonderful providence of God in ensuring Christ's victory over Satan, even in those times when it appeared that victory was impossible. It's a wonderful, wonderful story. So let me just review that for us. Let me just review quickly this, this marvelous history. And let me take you back to the very beginning of the Bible, to God's initial promise of Jesus' birth in Genesis 3.15. You know, right before this promise, you'll recall that Satan had tempted Adam and Eve to sin, and they did. They ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and God had told them not to do that, that if they did, they would die. And God had come into the garden now to pass judgment on Adam and Eve. You know, we don't know, but I think we can imagine how afraid they must have been. You know, I'm not sure that they knew exactly what dying actually meant. But they knew they had done what God had told them not to do. And they must have been terrified as they waited for a punishment from God which would perfectly fit their crime. You know, just as an aside, when I think of punishment that fits a crime, I can't help but think of that song from a Gilbert and Sullivan musical in which, in which the Lord High Executioner sings of his desire to have each punishment perfectly suit a particular crime. And one of the verses in that song concerns the perfect punishment meted out to a billiard player who cheated people out of their money in pool games. And the verse goes like this. Maybe you remember it. The billiard shark whom anyone catches... His doom's extremely hard. He's made to dwell in a dungeon cell in a spot that's always barred. And there he plays extravagant matches in fitless finger stalls 
on a cloth untrue with a twisted cue and elliptical billiard balls. Isn't that a perfect punishment for a pool shark who cheats? Maybe out of place, but I always think of that. And I think we might shudder as we think of a punishment suited to the infinite greater crime of Adam and Eve and their sin against the, uh, the Creator. I think we would expect infant, uh, instant death. God had promised that. But that isn't what happened, is it? Instead of dying immediately, which is what we would have uh, happened, expected, God pronounced only a token judgment on them. And even before this token judgment, something even more wonderful and unexpected happened. And that's Genesis 3.15. In Genesis 3.15, God promised Adam and Eve a deliverer, a savior. He promised Jesus who would come from Eve and her offspring. But those words also spell out the conflict, the war that's going to exist between Satan and the woman, between his offspring and her offspring, between himself and her great descendant, Jesus. And the words of the promise, the words of the conflict are, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall crush your head and you shall bruise him on the heel. And here's the thing. Revelation 12 is clearly based on this important verse. We find the same characters in both. And the same exact truth is proclaimed in both. The serpent of Genesis 3 is the dragon of Revelation 12. And it's right here in Genesis 3 that the earthly battle is joined between Christ and Satan. This is where it all begins. Well, very shortly, children are born to Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel. But Cain kills Abel. Then Seth is born. And it's through him that the promised seed, the Messiah, is to come. And Satan now begins to do all in his power to destroy Seth. You remember that he, he tells Seth's sons that they must marry the daughters of Cain. He tries to destroy Seth's generations in order to, uh, to annihilate the promise concerning the Messiah. Does the dragon succeed? Well, it looks like he does. Genesis 6.12 says, And God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Had Satan won? Looks like it, but no. He hadn't won. Among the families that descended from Seth, there's one which feared the Lord. You know who it was. That was the family of Noah. God saves that one family, eight people, and he destroys all the rest with the flood. And it's in this one family that the promise is continued. Again, the dragon stands in front of the woman in order to destroy the child. The promise concerning the Messiah is now given to Abraham and Sarah, his wife. This story is told in Genesis 18. 
Later it's summarized for us in Hebrews 11. Humanly speaking, that promise was never going to be fulfilled. You know the story. Abraham was 99. Sarah was 90, well past the age of childbearing. Her biological clock had run out. She had been barren all her life. Surely this is the end of the line. And the, tri- and the dragon has triumph. But then the miracle happens. And Isaac is born. The promise is now given to Isaac. But the Lord tells Abraham to, to offer Isaac as a sacrifice on Mount Moriah. And on Mount Moriah, Abraham raised the knife to kill his son. What will now become of God's promise? Surely, surely the dragon wins. But we know that didn't happen. Christ himself appeared in the form of an angel and safeguarded his own birth according to the flesh. Well, time goes on. The seed that was going to crush the serpent's head would be born from the generation of Isaac and Rebekah. But there was another problem. Rebekah was also barren. Again, Jehovah, the God of the promise, performs a miracle. And Rebekah conceives so that the promise is continued in the line of Jacob. Again, the dragon stands in front of the woman. He attacks Jacob's descendants, the Jews. You know, this time it surely seems as if he will be successful. For though the Lord in his mercy had led his people out of Egypt, they reject him. And what do they do? They start dancing around a golden calf. As we would expect, Jehovah was not amused. And he said to Moses, let me alone that I may consume them. Is this the end? Is the dragon actually going to win? He is, unless there's an intercessor. And there was. Moses intercedes, and the promise is saved again. Again, history moves on. Out of the tribe of Judah, God chooses one family, that of David. The promised Messiah will be born of the seed of David. So the dragon now aims his arrow at David. David has to be destroyed. 1 Samuel 18, verses 10 and 11 say, And a spear was in Saul's hand. And Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. We're told that Saul did this because an evil spirit came upon him. It was the dragon. Did the dragon succeed? No, because the text says that David escaped from Saul's presence not once, but twice. We move on. Athaliah, the wicked daughter of Ahab and Jezebel, is reigning in Judah. So that she may have absolute power, she decides to kill all the seed of David. The dragon stands in front of the woman. His wrath is directed against the child. And now finally, Satan is successful. At least so it seems. 
2 Kings chapter 11, verse 1. When Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she rose and destroyed all the royal offspring. <laughs> but here's the thing. She didn't get all of them. She missed one. Verse 2 says, But Jehoshaphat, the daughter of King Joram, sister of Ahaziah, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole from among the king's sons who were being put to death, and placed him and his nurse in the bedroom. So they hid him from Athaliah, and he was not put to death. Isn't that amazing? How marvelous is God's providence. Again, the promise is saved. Christ will be born of David's line, unless the dragon can somehow prevent that. So we move forward in time. And now the combined forces of Israel and Syria are gathered against Judah. They wage war to blot out the house of David, to set up a foreign king in the midst of Judah. It's a very critical moment in history. Will the Christ ever be born of the seed of David? It certainly doesn't look that way. Jehovah orders the prophet Isaiah to meet King Ahaz of Judah, to encourage him. Ahaz, however, refuses to ask for a sign as a pledge of Jehovah's aid. Surely the dragon will be successful now. Because a raid against the house of David has assembled these huge armies of Syria and Israel. You know, you can almost hear Satan laughing. But again, he laughs too soon. Because we read in Isaiah 7, 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son. And she will call his name Emmanuel. God's purpose must stand. Emmanuel must be born from the family of David. It's now the 5th century B.C. And King Ahasuerus, Ahasuerus is reigning, excuse me. At the request of Haman, you know the story, the king issues a decree that throughout all of his kingdom, all the Jews should be put to death. And he seals this decree with his signet ring. But Jehovah's promise concerning the mediator is to be born of the seed of David. It was sealed with the oath of the king of kings. Now, I don't need to relate to you what happened. Read the book of Esther yourself. The Jews, again, were saved. Now the final act in this mighty drama occurs. And the scene is Bethlehem. There in a manger lies the Christ child. But although he's now actually born, the dragon still tries to destroy him. In fact, Revelation 12, though covering with a, with a few words the entire previous history of Satan's warfare against the Christ, it refers directly and specifically to the events that took place in connection with Christ's birth. Verse 4, Revelation 12, And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. The wise men from the east are meeting with King Herod. Be sure, says Herod, to report to me as soon as you have found the child, because I want to come and worship him. Well, we know that that wasn't what he wanted to do. 
his intention was to kill the child. But the wise men, warned by God, returned to their country another way after they had found and worshipped the Christ. Still, the dragon refused to admit defeat. You know what happened next? All the infants of Bethlehem and the surrounding area, two years old and under, are murdered. Herod failed, and so did the dragon, because the Christ child was safe in Egypt. Dear ones, you can take it to the bank. God's purpose can never be frustrated. Christ's birth in Bethlehem is God's victory over the dragon. The Savior's death on the cross for his people is his further victory. Verse 5 of Revelation 12 says, Her child was caught up to God and to his throne. That refers to Christ's ascension, refers to his enthronement in heaven. Let's be clear. Those who oppose Christ will be treated to the iron rod, and that's going to remain true until he comes again. Christ triumphs. The dragon loses. And the angels sing glory to God in the highest. There you have it. That's not so quick a summary, but there it is. Isn't that an incredible history? You know, you go all the way back to Genesis. God's ways are marvelous. Well, what remains is to ask, where do you and I fit in this picture that God paints of this conflict between Christ and Satan? What what does all this have to do with us today? You know, as we read this passage and we look at this history, I think we see clearly that Satan directs his wrath primarily against the Christ child, whom he wanted to eliminate right at his birth. But as we've seen every single time that Satan attacks him, he becomes the loser. So he therefore looks for an easier target. And what does he do? He attacks the church. He attacks the followers of Christ. You know, both leading up to the birth of Christ and afterwards, Christians are always described as either offspring or they're represented by this woman described in this passage. John is talking about Christians here in this passage because he says in verse 17 of Revelation 12 that they're the ones who obey his commands. They're the ones who hold to the testimony of Jesus. In Revelation 12, we gain so much insight into how God acts for his people. We see that the prince of darkness is powerful leading up to the birth of Christ. He wants to snatch this baby away, wants to devour him. Satan is also powerful afterward, powerful enough to war against uh, those who obey God's commands and testify about him. Again, it looks like defeat is at hand. You know, there's an enormous seven-headed red dragon on the prowl. The woman and her offspring, the church, they look so poor. They look so vulnerable. Who's winning here when it looks like heaven is losing? But here's the lesson. God reveals that everything is under control. Everything may look very chaotic to us, like it's spinning out of control. But dear ones, it's not. God reveals to us here that it's all absolutely under control. 
when, appear, when it appears that all hell literally has broken loose, heaven is not surprised. Now, put another way. You know, when you see all kinds of, of evil swirling around you, you know, when things in your life are going south, when you suffer in this world, never forget, never forget that God has a plan to use all of it. And not only to use it, but to exploit it. You see, this is what happened that first Christmas. The one who is sovereign over all was born in humble circumstances, and he ascended to the throne of God. He came through suffering, and some of you now live in suffering, but you're still under his sovereignty. You're still under his protection from the very throne of God. Did you hear that? You're still under his sovereignty. You're still under his protection from the throne of God. You know, Satan relentlessly tries to persecute God's people. But dear ones, he's a slow learner. He doesn't seem to realize that the Lord is vigilantly protecting his people because they're the apple of his eye. Dear ones, I want you to grab hold of this promise afresh this Christmas season. Live by it throughout the new year, 2016. You know, none of us know what's coming tomorrow. We don't know what's coming over the horizon in the, in the new year. You may have a tough assignment right now in your life. I don't know what it might be. Maybe you're... Maybe you're living in the middle of an anxiously difficult family situation, an unbelieving spouse, a dying parent, a child who is getting a divorce, a granddaughter who is turned away from the truth. Maybe your husband or wife or child is deployed in harm's way in the military on the other side of the world. Maybe you're struggling with health problems. You may have to struggle with forgiving a, a bitter enemy. I don't know. And all of this may feel like an interruption in sovereignty. But, dear ones, it is not. You know, this picture painted before you in Revelation 12, that's a picture of history, actual history, things which took place in time and space. And it's God telling you, look, I'm here. I'm in control. I'm sovereign over the affairs of men. I'm serving my people, my church, and the gates of hell will never prevail over it. It's all there in my word. You know, whenever there's a plane crash, the search begins immediately for the black box. That's the first thing to look for because the black box has all the answers. Well, as you and I live out our days, we also look for answers. What just happened? Why did what just happened happen to me? Are there any answers as I face this trial? Where are you, Jesus? My prayers just seem to be bouncing off the ceiling. Why don't you answer? Well, he has. And he does. And he will. You know, in a way... Revelation 12 is the black box of Jesus. 
And he's saying to his people, I'd like to show you what happened when it appeared that the universe crashed. You know, the dragon dashed stars out of the sky. He waited to devour me at my birth, but he didn't. He couldn't. Instead, I revealed my sovereignty and my servanthood. You may feel lost right now, but you belong to me. And I'm guiding all of history. I'm guiding your history, even in suffering. You know, when the dragon bites you, and he will, even then I'm in control. It won't crash finally. Dear ones, that's powerful stuff. That is very powerful stuff. And we ought to really study this revelational black box recorder before us this morning. In the same way that the FAA looks at the black boxes before them. We can and we should look and look and look again until our faith grows and we see not only what we see, but also what God sees and shares with us. Take comfort and encouragement from this this Christmas. I pray that God would make it so in your heart. Let's pray. Now, our Father, we pray that you would bless these words to our hearts. May we be faithful and obedient to your word and the gospel of your Son. May we see clearly that Satan is unable to touch us if we keep your commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. May we advance the cause of Christ's kingdom wherever you and your providence decide to put us. May we be unafraid, letting Christ's admonition fear not ring in our ears, knowing that you will bear us up on eagles' wings, knowing that in the desert of our affliction, this earthly sojourn, you have prepared a place for us, and that you nourish us with the manna of your word. May we always be filled with joy in the Lord, knowing that the glories of heaven await us. And I pray these things in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen and amen.